Welcome to the Radical Brilliance Podcast with Arjuna Arda and brilliant guests from around the world who are contributing to the evolution of humanity. Today's guest is Eric Edmeads, who's going to talk about the diet to sustain brilliance. So here's your host, Arjuna Arda. Hey, welcome back to the Radical Brilliance Podcast. Today's guest is a dear, dear friend who I've known for, well, it seems like forever, I, at least 10 years, maybe more. Eric Edmeads is one of those people who is never afraid or shy to think big picture, to do big things, and to make a huge difference. So, when I first met him, he had already founded a very successful company in England that did incredibly well. He'd sold it for enough income that he could basically just float downstream for as long as he wanted. I met him and his beautiful wife, Elise, at a group we're both part of called the Transformational Leadership Council. But Eric discovered soon after I met him that Industrial Light and Magic, the special effects company founded by George Lucas to make the Star Wars films originally, was actually splitting into two parts. So it used to be that all those special effects were done in a studio with a green screen. But as technology got better and better, industrial light and magic, a lot of it could be just done on eight computers in one office suite. So they needed a massive studio to do certain things. Most, most special effects could be done just on eight computers, but uh, they, need, they still needed this huge, huge, huge studio to do certain very specific things. Like, for example, you can't, at least at that time, you couldn't effectively simulate fire through uh, computers. Also, you couldn't really uh, simulate the, the effect of, of water, like, like of, uh, of a tsunami or something. So fire and water, those two still required a huge, huge, like, a, like a, an airplane hangar size uh, studio. And so Industrial Light and Magic split into two parts. One went to a suite in the Presidio in San Francisco with, with one office suite, and the other became Kerner Optics, which is situated in San Rafael, and it was up for sale. So George Lucas didn't want to keep both these parts. So Eric Edmeads, he bought Kerner Optics, right? He bought a studio that was really dedicated to building things and then either blowing them up or flooding them, and he had no experience no previous experience of this at all. It was a very, very bold and humorous move. I, I went there many times to visit Kerner Optics and to see the crazy stuff they were doing, blowing stuff up. I remember one time I went there and um, they, had, they had created this uh, steam train and the model of the steam train was like, you know, it's the size of a, about the size of a motorbike. And they had these tracks going all through this um, huge, huge... Uh, sound space they call it it was green all around so they were going to run this train through these tracks it took them about six months to build it all and it took about 30 seconds to destroy it i remember them running this train down these tracks they were filming it with i think 30 different cameras 
and, and, and they blew it up. They blew up the train on the tracks. Incredible. I remember him uh, um, having small helicopters, I mean, model helicopters crashing into water. So this was Eric Edmeads. It's the kind of thing he likes doing is just taking on something and uh, something huge and making it work. So Eric is also a very masterful speaker, as you'll see from our conversation. He's a great expert on business. He's written books on business. He understands business very well. But I think the most interesting thing about Eric, the thing that has most influenced me, is that he has deeply, deeply transformed his relationship to food. As you'll hear, he was not super healthy in his early life. And um, he had a, some difficult decisions to make with the conventional medical establishment. So he went his own way and actually healed himself through understanding food. This is such an important topic for the Radical Brilliance podcast because the food that we eat these days, if it's unconscious, if we don't understand, fully understand the food industry, we're putting, we're going to be putting all kinds of crazy stuff into our bodies. You know, when you go to one of those big grocery stores, the big chains, you know, most of what is sold there is actually what Michael Pollan calls food-like substances. It's not really food at all. When you buy something wrapped up in a foil package and it's got this long list of ingredients with ingredients like, you know, monocryptocarbonate or something or something like that, it's not actually food. It's not something that has been thought of as food for very long. It's something made in a factory which you can eat without dying but it's made of all sorts of chemicals and synthetic ingredients. We don't fully know the long-term effects of any of that on our health, but above all, we don't know the effect of all of that on mental clarity. So it's so relevant to talking about brilliance because if, we are, if our minds are influenced by toxins in the food we eat, you can, you can kiss goodbye to really being your most brilliant self. So Eric has done the best work that I know of reconnecting us back to what is really the natural human dieta. We can do a lot of um, reparation work just by getting back to before processed food, which doesn't have to go back very far. If you go back to the 1950s, 1960s, there was much less processed food there. If you go back to before the Industrial Revolution, which means the end of the 19th century, you can see already that people were eating much more from raw ingredients. But you have to go back much further to before the agricultural revolution, which is five to 10,000 years ago, to really reconnect with the natural human dieta, which means before animals were herded, before fields were cultivated. It means we're going back to before the advent of harvesting and cooking wheat means we're going back to before we were herding cows and milking them. So that means it's before milk products became part of our diet, before wheat and everything connected with wheat became part of our diet, and before the widespread cultivation of sugar cane and therefore white sugar. We can get back to what people have been eating as human beings. By the time you go back that far, then from there on it's, as far as we know, fairly undisruptive. You can go back to the dieta human dieta and, and um, 
Eric will explain the word daita when we talk in a minute. If you can go back just five or 10,000 years, then you can see what we've been eating prior to that without much change for hundreds of thousands of years. Now, this is relevant because you're going to drastically improve your health. If you get back to the diet that was meant for human bodies, you're going to immediately see huge changes in your health, very much reduction in inflammation and in food allergies. But what interests me for this podcast is you're also going to radically improve your mental clarity and your emotional balance. You're going to improve your capacity for radical brilliance. So with that groundwork set, let's move over to Eric now to the conversation I had with him. We'll find out why one of the most important changes you can make in your life is to shift your diet to the foods that will give you optimum mental clarity so you can make the greatest contribution. Let's move over to that conversation now and listen to the startling discoveries of Eric Edmeads. All right. Hey, Eric. Hello. Here we are in Mexico, hanging out. And thanks for taking a little time away from the beach and the waves and the people to talk about food. It's important. It's, it's, it's you know, it's, so, it's one of those things that um, we get into these little bubbles of history, you know, uh, where we, we, we get used to the way things are now. And uh, I guess we don't need this. Uh, we get used to the way things are now, and we, 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 we divorce ourselves from fairly recent history, and that's enormously true with food. I mean, it's, it's, it, it appears to me that the way that we produce and consume food has gone through an unrecognizable change just in the last, within, almost within our generation, actually. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty serious, and it, it, uh, it's so interesting to me that we have all these unbelievable debates around the world about healthcare systems. You know, Canada's got theirs, yeah. universal healthcare, and yeah. Britain's got theirs. And right. every, you know, the, the, uh, in America, people always want to compare against how great the Canadian system is, and the Canadians are coming back and saying, well, you don't know what our wait times are like. And, yeah. you know, it's just, it, what's amazing to me is in that entire debate about universal healthcare, we are forgetting the old story about you know the the guy who sees the woman sees the woman drowning in the river and he and he runs in he pulls her out and he and he gives her CPR and gets her breathing and he's like oh he's he's winded she's alive thank God and then now he sees two more people in the river and he runs into the river and he pulls them out and gives them both and saves them both and then there's three people in the river and he just keeps doing this and you know like it wouldn't have been it just would have made a whole lot more sense to walk up river and find out who's throwing these people in all right, all right. and and we're yeah. in our medical system we're okay. all about the the, the life saving part of it. <laughs> Story. It is, but it's it's we're all about that part. We're you know we're debating how to fund the saving of people. Right. We're debating how to fund the the, the, the drugs that they need. Exactly. We're debating how to fund the hospitals. Right. And nobody is going upstream and saying, wait a second now. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, what what about what they're eating? Right. Exactly. You know, a doctor can go through uh, you know six or eight years of medical school and 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 barely discuss food. Exactly. So I, it is. It's an important topic. Right. You know, I actually went to the doctor. I, I just recently for the first time in a long time like got on like mega health insurance like it's actually 1300 a month can you believe that $1,300 a month you know so I thought okay now I've got this medical insurance I'm actually going to go to like a regular doctor and have a regular doctor conversation 
And the weak area of my body is my digestive system. It's kind of, it's okay, but I have to manage it. So I was telling him a little bit. And he said, yeah, there's, you could take this azole or azine or something. And I said, oh, okay. So this was, you know, he said, it's probably an inflammatory response. So take this medicine. I said, okay, well, what about diet? It doesn't make any difference. Eat what you want. I thought, are you kidding me? <laughs> it's insane. I remember, you, you might remember the old uh, famous Dr. Spock. Yeah. Not, not the pointy-eared one. But no, the, no, uh, the, 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 the child psychologist, yeah. And he, um, he uh, came out against the, the, you know, the common beliefs of the time. He came out against dairy products. and He, he gets, gets breastfeeding as well. It's amazing. He came out against it? Against breastfeeding. No, I don't recall yeah. that. But, he, but what was fascinating to me is that one of his compatriots, a, a doctor who had apparently worked with him, um, started saying that, that he was you know, sick or something, that mm. something was wrong with him, that uh, clearly people have to have their milk and what have you. And, mm. and, um, and then in this interview, I, I read the interview, the interviewer says, well, I mean, surely we should eat you know, healthy. We should eat fruits and vegetables. And the doctor says, I kid you not, he goes, you know, I never liked them. Just take a multivitamin. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. think about that. You know, it's, yeah. it's, so we're, we are, we're in a, in an age right now where our focus is on the symptom. It's, it's yes. on yeah. how do we alleviate this pain? You know, I, I'll give you a great example. Uh, in my opinion, um, I think, I think we now, I think we're now willing as a population to accept that type two diabetes is reversible. I, I think that that's kind of something that we're willing to believe, mm-hmm. but it is, it wasn't for the longest time. And where we, where, what, what, if you think about it from an from a economic perspective, somebody comes along, they're pre-diabetic they're, or they're type 2 diabetic, and, and now they're going to take medication. For how long? Forever, for, until the end. They're going to take medication of various kinds. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a life sentence. And that's a very profitable life sentence. Mm-hmm. It's not so sure. profitable to say, you know what? Maybe what you need to do is cut down a bit of this, add in a bit of this, and do a little moving, mm. and maybe you can turn this whole condition around and not have right. this expense. Yeah. And this is one of the reasons that I have a very, you know, sort of, I'm quite circumspect about universal health care because, look, you said you're paying 1300 a month. Here's what bothers me. When you shop for car insurance, if you found out there was a car insurance company that charged everybody exactly the same rate, irrespective of their driving history, yeah, yeah. you know, the 16-year-old kid with two DUIs and a car accident is paying the same rate as you, you'd go to another insurance company. Right. Only most of our medical insurance is it's that way. It's a good point. You know, and, and, it's, and, it, and it is that way because capitalism has its flaws. I, yeah. You know, it does. And one of those flaws is, is that in a given moment, somebody having uh, um, type 2 diabetes generates an incredible amount of economy. It creates all kinds of jobs. It pays for patent registrations for medicines. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a massive expense over the space of the 20, 30, 40 years that that person's going to be spending hundreds of dollars a month. And it's not so profitable to say to that person, hey, wait a second, you can turn this around. Exactly. Now, I'm not suggesting any one person is evil. I'm saying we have a system that's yeah, broken. For sure, for sure. Well, let's go from there. Let's jump to your story because actually it's all about this, that you were actually, as I remember, not in great health when you were in your early 20s, right? Yeah. 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 Let's go back there and, and uh, tell me what was going on. You know, life was very different back then, um, obviously. And what I mean by that is that back, if you, if you talk to people that are my age, and your age, I'll, I will, well, let me ask you the question. When you went to 12 years of school, you, you went to school in England, right? So yeah. you went through 12 years of school. Um, how many really overweight kids did you go to school with? 
A few. Yeah. I mean, two, maybe three. Yeah. Three, yeah. right? Like, yeah. same for me. I remember their names. Yeah. I, I went to school with two of them. I still remember their names right. because it was such a prominent thing. Yeah. I remember their names. I, like, I don't remember. I don't remember that. Like, you know, but this is a few years ago. 12 years of school, two, I, please excuse the term because this is what we called them then, quote, fat kids. Right. Right? So I was healthy compared to that. Mm-hmm. In my model of the world, I mean, I wasn't like that. I, I sure I had a few extra pounds. Sure, I had a sniffly nose all the time. Sure, I had throat infections so severe that my tonsils were bleeding every day. You know, yeah, but I, that's that's pretty that's pretty serious for it, it is, a kid about age. But, but it, it's one of those things. Once you've lived with it for long enough, you just yeah. accept. It is a reality. Yeah. I'd been to see doctors. Yeah. I'd been to see specialists. I'd been prescribed medicines that ranged from pills to injections and right. everything in the middle. Yeah. And nothing had helped. And so clearly, think about it from my perspective, I must not be sick. Because yeah. if I was sick, right. a doctor could fix it. And right. I must just be me. Yes. And that's, that's where I arrived is that yeah. I'm, I'm you know, sure, I carry a few extra pounds. Sure, I've got these symptoms, but it's just me. I am that. Right. And compared to, you know, I would never have thought of myself as overweight because I had this comparison, right? And, yeah. And, uh, and then but one day... But you were suffering. You weren't happy with... I the, was suffering. You weren't happy with the way you felt. No, but I, you know, I don't know how to put this except to say that you suffer long enough with something and it stops being suffering and it just becomes a soft tolerance. Absolutely, yeah. And so I wouldn't, I mean, it was bad enough that I was willing to go to the doctor's office and, you know, but the truth is most of those, most of those appointments were set up by my mom Mm. who was feeling my suffering probably more than I was, right? Right. And then, and then eventually I, uh, I sit down with a couple of friends and they tell me, hey, you know what? Maybe you need to give some thought to your diet. You know, maybe you right. need to give some thought to your food. And I, I did for 30 days. I can make some adjustment here and see what happens. And within two weeks, I was a different person. Truly, I remember. I mean, yeah. one of the things I was in was cystic acne. Yeah. So I, I, under, under my jawline, I had the, you know, like I'd pock, I still have scars from it in, inside here. Like mm. I, I, it was so painful that smiling hurt at times. Mm. And, mm. and within two weeks of just making some, just subtle changes, nothing dramatic. What, what were those changes? They, you know, it was like uh, cutting, it like, refined, like refined sugar. Yeah. Don't drink Coke anymore. Right. Okay, I had stopped Coke a long time before, but I was still drinking 7-Up and Sprite and that kind right. of stuff. So I was still having soft drinks and deep fried stuff. And, yeah. you know, it was just like not so much fast food and, yeah. and, and, and that sort of thing. And after two weeks, I walked into the bathroom one day and I was washing my face. And I, I, I washed my face like a fiend back then because, I, I of course... I viewed acne as a condition of the skin, not as a condition of the digestive system, right? So I'm washing my face, and one day I looked in the mirror, it's like, there was only old stuff. No new pimples were coming up. And I was like, that's interesting. And then over the next little while, I noticed that my throat was no longer sore, and Mm -hmm. my sniffles had gone away, Mm -hmm. and after a month, I'd lost 30-some-odd pounds. A month? Yeah, a month in, I'd lost 30 pounds, and I I was a completely... crazy. I'll tell you, right after that, I flew off to uh, South Africa to visit my mom. Mm -hmm. She was living in Johannesburg at the time. And, um, and I took a girlfriend with me and my girlfriend, Robin, and she had bright, bright red hair. Okay. Strawberry hunt. Robin, if you're listening, strawberry blonde, I know uh-huh. bright red hair. Uh-huh. And so, uh, <laughs> and, um, and so the reason that's important is that as we came off the plane into uh, Johannesburg airport, we, uh, landed and my mom looked at me and didn't see me. 
Mm. I mean, she looked right at me and didn't see me. Oh, my God. And then she looked over and she saw Robin, bright red hair, mm. recognized her, did the double take back to me, yeah. and then realized it was me. Wow. The, the, mother. Such was the structural change in my Jeez. face from the inflammation going out of my sinuses, right. from the fat coming off the sides. Wow. So significant was the change in my face that my mother didn't recognize. Now, let's just say this again, just because I want to get my head around it. You're talking about less... Refined sugar. No, no. I took out refined sugar for a month. Okay. I took out... Um, I actually stopped eating meat during that month. It was just an okay. experiment. Part of it... Um, you know, I'm, I'm not a vegan now, but I certainly went into kind of a... Okay. I, I went into a healthier relationship with meat. I... I, um, I and I, I cut down... I, I eliminated deep fried food during that time, and I cut dairy? out all dairy products. All dairy. Because that's that, big. That's where the skin and throat right. and nose so stuff is. all dairy, all sugar. Yeah. Right. And deep fried food. Okay, cool. And that would become the beginning for me, because at that point... I suddenly hit this thing of why I, I now became angry. I actually became angry because I suddenly realized all the injections of stuff they, you know, and all the pills and all that stuff that I'd been taking. You know, I remember one of the pills they gave me was a, the brand name is Accutane. Yeah. And I read the side effects. Yeah. I read that there's a disclaimer that comes in the box and it says, if you are sexually active while on this medication, you must use at least two forms of birth control. And if somehow you or your partner get pregnant while on this medication, you must abort. Oh, fuck. I mean, this is a pill I'm taking, oh my right? God, really? And so when I look back at all this medication and all these visits to the doctor, all the wasted Jeez. time, all the crap I was pumping into my body, I thought, I just fixed it all in 30 days by changing my food. I became angry. I, was, I went to my doctor at one point and I was like, I, I really, you know, I wasn't angry at him, but I was like kind of frustrated. And I said, you know, I asked him how long he'd been in medical school, which I think must be... If you're a doctor, that must come across a pretty impertinent question from a 21-year-old who looked 12, by the yeah, way, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and he said, six years or whatever. And, and I said, I just, I really need to know, in that six years, how much that time did you spend studying nutrition? And the answer was none. Right. Like, literally none. Right. And, uh, and that's, that, began the, that began the quest for me. Now, you went back, because you had a, 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 an appointment schedule for your tonsils, and you went back, and then... That's what set the whole thing off, is yeah. I'd gone to a throat specialist. My doctor had been trying to fix these throat and uh, um, sinus infections that I've been having for years and he and one day I went in to see him and he'd given me another batch of whatever you know to take and antibiotics and what have you and he looked in my throat and I saw him react viscerally I saw him he looked into my throat mm. and what what he saw was that I had two golf ball sized tonsils that were bleeding mm. they were so infected and he's like you know what we have to take them out we got to send you to a specialist this was before you made the diet before I made yeah. the changes he yeah. sent me off to the specialist and the specialist, same thing, looked in my throat and was like, I don't know how you're living with those. You've got to have them out. And so they ordered a tonsillectomy. And there's, at that stage, there was like a six-week wait yeah. you know, for a tonsillectomy. And uh, that's when my friends sat me down. When they knew I was going in for surgery, they said, you gotta, you got you to gotta consider making some changes. Right. right. And, um, and then, of course, after the 30 days, I had no problems with my throat. I had no problems with my sinuses. It was all done. And my doctor's office called me up to confirm the surgery. And, and I was like, I'm not coming. Mm. And, there, and, and I, I tell you what really blew me away at this point. I mean, aside from the cover recovery and all that stuff was that the doctor, the woman on the phone from the doctor's office suddenly switched from being a medical receptionist to being the worst kind of used car salesman. Mm -hmm. You know, all of a sudden it was like, look, you, you don't want to give up the surgery now. The surgery's already been booked you know, and the pain's going to come back a lot of times, you know, people before their surgery, they get afraid and then the pain, they feel like the pain went away, but you're probably still, in. I mean, it was the most manipulative attempt 
mm. at, at making money. This is the reception. This is the reception is trying the to save the save the sale. Did the doctor do the same? Well, I didn't. I, I never saw oh, that doctor sorry. again. Okay. I, I that that particular surgeon. I, I saw him that one time, and then I never went for it. But his office tried hard to get me to. Wow. To, to come in and I said no I'll be fine and, wow. and she, the last thing she said is you know what's going to happen is your pain's going to come back and you're going to come back to us again and we're going to say I told you so and you're going to have to wait another six weeks in pain I mean it was deeply manipulative right, right. and of course no I've never been back I still have my tonsils and you know I, I've had mm. maybe two sore throats uh, since then mm. but bear in mind I've also logged 100,000 or sorry 100,000 I've probably logged over 10,000 hours on stage in uh, you know air conditioned rooms mm-hmm. I'm on I, I fly 100,000 miles a year I think to have had two or three sore throats in the last 20 years sure. I'll take it yeah right, right. I didn't totally. need my tonsils out totally totally If you're enjoying this podcast with Arjuna Arda and his radically brilliant guest, you might also enjoy our eight-week online group coaching program. It's an opportunity to go deep and get stable in practices that enhance your own brilliance. We only take 20 participants at a time, so in a small and intimate group, you can go through the whole radical brilliance cycle. You'll have an accountability partner in another brilliant aspirant from somewhere around the world. The eight-week coaching program involves eight one-hour webinars with Arjuna Arda and a group of other Radical Brilliance coaches. You'll also receive one 30-minute coaching session with your own personal coach every week and one 90-minute coaching session with Arjuna himself. It's the ideal opportunity to drop deep into yourself, into the source of your own creativity, and to get support for an entire eight weeks of mining your own radical brilliance and bringing it forth into a project or creation that can truly serve the future of humanity. Find out more at RadicalBrilliance.com and click on the Programs tab. Wow, wow. So that on its own is pretty astounding. But the story thickens because you have this strong... You, you, at one point, I remember you were flying. You were flying on Virgin Airlines and you... I had a breakthrough moment. Yeah. It, what happened? You know, I feel like... Look, in, in the days BG, you know, before Google, mm-hmm. you know, an idea would pop into your head or a question would pop into your head and... and you'd be stuck with it. There was no solution. I mean, okay, yeah, maybe you, you could head down to the library and open up an encyclopedia. Or, but it was effort to answer a question. That's a good point, yeah. And, and so my question was, why is it that doctors don't study food? Like, I had this question. Why I wouldn't take my car to a mechanic who didn't understand antifreeze gas and oil, yeah. the fluids that have to be put into it for it to run. Yeah. Like, I, why would I go to a doctor? Doesn't it? So this bothered me. And that got me thinking generally about food. And so I was on this uh, I was on this plane, and I was um, reading an article in the back of the magazine about elephants. I'm, I'm into conservation, and I'm originally from South Africa, so I had this like you know deep seated curiosity and interest in all things nature conservation. And so I'm reading this article, and they're talking about putting elephants in captivity, you know, a hundred years ago in the mm-hmm. zoos and circuses. And the article went on to explain that the elephants would typically only live seven, eight, nine, ten years. 
in a zoo. They'd capture it, put it in the zoo, it would be dead 10 years later. But as nobody knew what the proper lifespan of an elephant was, they didn't really, they just assumed that, that that's, I mean, look, Great Danes live 10 years. Chihuahuas might live 18. You know, maybe there's some size thing they thought, you know, they, they, maybe they just don't live that long. And then of course, you know, uh, as we began to understand more about our natural world, uh, the truth came out that elephants really are supposed to, in nature, they'll live 70 or even 80 years. Exactly. And suddenly... So it's a massive difference, 10 years It's a years. big deal. Yeah. You know, bear in mind, some of the elephants might have already been 20 or 30 when they caught them, mm-hmm. but they, because they didn't know how old they were and they didn't know how long they're supposed to live when they died after 10 years, it was, it was consistent, mm-hmm. roughly in that range. You know, but now all of a sudden the truth came out. These animals could live seven or eighty years, and I'd like to think that some of the zoo and circus owners at that point became interested in the elephant welfare. But I think the truth is they became interested in ROI. You know, they they were like, well, I paid X for this elephant, and it was they you know they only lived ten years, but if I can get this thing to live an extra thirty or forty years, how much more money can I make? And so they this article went on to talk about that and how they started doing research to measure what the differences were. Why are these elephants only living ten years, and why are these ones living seventy years? And and of course, one of the things they zeroed in on was diet. This, and this article was fascinating, but there was a grammatical thing that was irritating me about the article because they kept on talking about, well, the elephants in the zoo were on this like captive diet and the elephants in the wild were living on this wild diet. And that irritated me because grammatically that's not correct. The elephants were not on a wild diet. The elephants in the wild were on the elephant's diet. Elephant diet, right. Yeah, and the elephants in captivity were not. Yeah. And exactly. it was, you know, you, it, that irritated me, like, so much so that I wanted to get a red marker mm-hmm. and circle, yeah. you know, wild diet, because it's grammatically incorrect. There is no wild diet. There's, there's every species has, and that was the moment I had that thought. Yeah. I was like, every species has its own diet. And the, the word diet, it comes from dieta. Right? Yes, which right. means... Way of life. Way of life. So it's it's not simply temporary alteration to your eating pattern in order to fit right. into that dress for so, prom. So how you much know. you exercise is part of your dieta. Your everything is your yeah. lifestyle in truth. You know yeah. everything is. But you know what's happened is, and you know languages evolve. I, I I'm always teasing my son that they that his generation uses the word meme incorrectly. Mm-hmm. I think meme's an interesting word. It's, I think it was Richard Dawkins who coined the word, and mm-hmm. it was a metaphor or a you know it was a word that described a, an idea as a gene and how that idea. And now meme has become image on Facebook with smart ass saying. Yes, right, right, right. right? And which funny Trending, enough yeah. is kind of a form of a meme, but language evolves. I, I yeah. accept that. And so language has evolved so that diet predominantly these days um, has to do with uh, um, food. Even even now in a nature program, they'll say, well, the elephant's diet consists of eating 200 kilograms of grass, bark, and fruit every day and drinking 70 liters of water. They don't then go and walk so many miles. Like they, right. they exactly. even in a nature yeah. program, the word diet has been reduced to food. But with humans, the word diet's been reduced to temporary alteration to your eating patterns in order to achieve a short-term goal. Yes. And 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 if you really think about it, the only animals on earth that go on diets mm-hmm. are humans and our pets. Mm-hmm. And we we and our pets are the sickest. Well, and our livestock are the sickest animals on earth. Mm-hmm. If if humans are feeding you, you're in trouble. Mm-hmm. If if Mother Nature's feeding you, you got a chance. <laughs> right. So, obviously, this, you know, if we, if we start to talk about the, I mean, I guess you, you extrapolate this out beyond the elephant diet. I mean, you, you could talk about the termite diet and the cheetah diet. And the... Well, it's funny you mentioned cheetahs. Um, you know, I, I, around about that same time, I was doing some uh, wildlife photography work, and I went down to uh, um, a cheetah sanctuary where they breed cheetahs. 
Uh, they rescue cheetahs from the wild, and they breed cheetahs because obviously, like most species, they're in trouble. And and um, and what was interesting is that cheetahs are they're very difficult to breed. You know, when you breed African wild dogs, it's actually quite straightforward. You take a male and you take a female and you put them in a pen together, and a couple of weeks later, you got puppies. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. But with cheetahs, there's a political dynamic. Um, you a woman won't just mate with any old male cheetah. So you, it's actually kind of interesting. They, they set up this, um, uh, they put all the men in these pens, uh, and they call, which they call lover's lane. And then you take the female and you walk on a leash and you walk her up and down the lane and she smells the, you know, and looks in and checks them out. <laughs> and then she chooses one. This is speed dating for cheetahs. It's speed dating for cheetahs, which <laughs> okay. is funny in itself. And so they open, you know, she'll select one of the cages. She'll give the right signs. They open the door and let her in, unhitch her from her leash and let her in. And at this point, she will either kill him or mate with him. Uh So in that way, it's not dissimilar from human dating, I think. There's some similarities. Right, okay. But uh, what was interesting is once they unlocked that part, (laughs) they were still not getting pregnant. Uh And that was a mystery. So they'd unlocked the behavioral part. But now there was something else going on. Now, of course, you know, I'm in this space where I'm all fascinated by diet, right? Because I've just had this big awakening and... And so I asked the question, I said, well, did diet come? And they go, yes, that's, that's what unlocked it in the end. What happened is they, they, they were studying, they had vets come in and study the cheetahs, and they started doing metrics testing against wild cheetahs. And one of the things they found is when they did live blood analysis, they looked at wild cheetahs' blood under a microscope and captive cheetahs' blood under a microscope, and it was vastly different. Vastly different. The, the, the wild cheetahs had blood much the way you would expect it. Beautiful little you know, pink discs with a little dimple in them and flowing individually around and doing their things. Whereas in the uh, captive cheetahs, they had um, blood cells that were spiky and yeah. that were stuck to each other and, exactly. and, glom- and streams of fat in the bloodstream. And they're like, well, wait a minute now. What's the difference? Because cheetahs, their diet is meat. Right? They're carnivores. They're pure carnivores. The only reason you ever see a cat nibbling at grass is because his stomach is upset. It's not eating grass. It's nibbling grass to cause regurgitation. They are carnivores. So why is there this difference in the blood between the cheetahs? Well, as it turns out, here's the difference. The captive cheetahs weren't eating antelope. They were eating a variety of horses and, and cows and things that had been donated by farmers when their livestock died. They would donate these animals. And, well, what's the difference is, well, a cow is 30 or 40% fat, and an and a antelope is 4% fat. So suddenly you've got this, like, one sudden, uh, sorry, one slight change in their diet. They're eating meat, both of them. Yeah. But one of them is eating wild meat, and the other one is eating, you know, our basically genetically modified meat. I know it's not technically GMO, but we bred those animals to carry that extra fat. So they're eating these very high fat, high saturated fat animals, and it's having an impact on their blood. Mm. These, this, that couple of weeks where I just thought I had this realization about the elephant diet and that every species on earth has a diet, then I saw the subtlety of the cheetah diet and how it had an impact on their breeding capacity. And that same trip, they started telling us about the Michalisberg vultures that live in the mountains around that area. This was fascinating. The vulture numbers had been going down for years. That's wildlife, right? And the local farmers who had grown up with the vultures in the sky were nostalgic for them and wanted to try to figure out why, you know, how they could save the species. And they thought probably the issue is, is that because they live only in this one mountain range, this one species. And they figured the issue is, well, as the farmlands have grown, there's less food available for them. So we'll make food available for them. So now, you know, let's say a horse died, they would then, they, they cut out clearings in the forest and they would leave the horse in the forest for the birds to come down. So they're feeding them. They thought, well, the problem is they don't, you know, we've taken up all the wildlife area, so there's no, great, no effect. The numbers kept falling. It wasn't helping at all. 
And then one day somebody was observing these vultures up on the cliffs and one of the vultures, baby vulture, was going to take its first flight and it's standing on the edge of the cliff because they're high mountain and stepped off and went to flap its wings and one of its wings snapped, which actually harkens back to the old condor story you know, in, in America. But the difference in America was those condors were having those problems. They were having major calcium problems because of DDTs, pesticides. Mm. But none of those are in use in that area of Africa. So they're like, what the hell? What's going on? Then they took a look at their diet. Now, vultures don't show up. Vultures don't kill the animal themselves, mostly. right? The odd big vulture can take a small antelope. But for the most part, vultures are showing up after the lions, after the hyenas, after the, the jackals, which means they're picking up broken up bone shards and bone marrow and sinew. Right. They're not eating meat right off the bone. And so the difference was calcium. That after a, after a hyena has been there and broken up all the ribs and stuff, there's bone marrow and bone shards. And the, so, so now the, the farmers took these, you know, if they had a goat die, they'd take the goat out there. But instead of taking the goat out there, now they would take sledgehammers, this little, and break up the bones. And so now when the vultures came down, their diet was being fulfilled. Mm -hmm. And that year was the first year their numbers started to climb again. Diet is an incredibly um, intricate thing. Obviously, we're more adaptable than Michalisburg vultures, but we still have to pay attention. And frankly, our food production system isn't. So let's see. I mean, you've talked about modifications to the cheetah's diet and the vulture's diet. I mean... No creature on Earth has had its diet messed with more than human beings. I mean, so let's see if we can explore that. I mean, let's see if we can compare the captive human diet, right, to the wild, to the wild diet, which I guess would be certainly pre-industrial, certainly pre-packaged foods, right? Definitely, probably pre-industrial and really pre-agricultural revolution. Here's where it all goes wrong, in my humble opinion. And by wrong, what I mean is, is that you know, something can be wrong in one in one context and it can be right in another context. So where it starts going wrong is, you know, whatever, 20-ish thousand years ago, some of our ancestors uh, were moving from camp to camp as they do. You know, I've, I've obviously, I've gone to stay with the Hadza Bushmen a number of times and as as much as they're migratory... Hadza Bushmen are in Ethiopia? East Africa, in Tanzania. Tanzania, yeah. And as much as they're migratory, they do pick favorite campsites and go back to them as they move with the water and move with the wildlife and what have you. And so you, I imagine our ancestors 20,000 years ago were probably doing something quite similar. And they have no fixed... Home. No fixed... Okay. They, no, they don't have... They set up little shelters and basically sleep under the stars. They, they, they're... they're uh, very primitive in their level of civilization. They have no money. They don't. They don't. You know, it's. They're not like the. You know, you 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 could go to Tanzania and you could see the Maasai and think of them living a primitive lifestyle compared to what you might be used to in the Western world because they wear their you know gown, their their blankets, and and they herd their goats and stuff. But you watch closely. You watch them for more than fifteen minutes, and he'll take a cell phone out of his robe. <laughs> like they, you know, they yeah. they're they're, they're uh, much more advanced than the Bushmen who are. Okay. Um, truly hunter-gatherers, no yeah. home, no, you know, right. whatever. And uh, so anyway, going to our ancestors 20,000 years ago, I imagine, you know, it, it kind of goes like this. They arrive back at camp one day and they notice there's some plants growing over here, edible plants. And they're like, hey, dude, isn't that where we were throwing the pits last year? Mm-hmm. And at that, at some, something like that happened. And they're like, you don't suppose we can actually control these plants, do you? <laughs> and at that, at that stage, a major shift happens and, the, and agriculture is born. Mm. And the minute agriculture is born, our entire destiny changes. Uh, you could argue for the good because all of a sudden when we are able to control our, our, um, our food supply, 
uh, star- the incidents of starvation must surely have been cut dramatically. I mean, you know, obviously it, it would be it would end up getting cut even less. But just simply being able to grow food, if you think about it in um, in, in uh, anthropological measurements, they have a, in anthropology there's a measurement called calories per acre. And so if you're a hunter-gatherer, your calories per acre are very sparse. You, you have huge distances you have to travel to satisfy your most basic nutritional and calorie requirements. Which means, actually, that a lot of walking becomes part of the diet. Part of it, absolutely. Yeah. So suddenly you start growing plants, mm. and um, now a bunch of different things happen because as you get more technologically advanced with growing your plants, now you invent repetitive stress injuries for the first time, mm-hmm. right? Because you're like tilling the soil and yeah. all of a sudden you're, there's repetitive stress injury. And then on top of that, as much as you're still working quite hard, the work is very different than the body was developed for, so you're stooped over quite a lot. Yeah. And you're not walking 10, 20 miles a day to get your basic needs met. So all these changes start happening, but what they also afford is predictable calorie delivery. So now villages can actually sustain larger populations. So instead of having a, 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 a little village that might have eight people in it or up to 40 or 50 people in it, now you can have two or 300 people. Mm. And, and then agriculture, and, and you know, so now when you start bringing grains into the mix, now you could actually store calories mm-hmm. over the starvation periods, which would immediately support a larger population growth because you weren't losing so many people over the winter. So I'm not, when I say bad, I mean bad on an individual basis, but good on a population basis. Mm-hmm. Once we started, well, once we figured out how to grow plants, that changed everything. Mm-hmm. And that's the beginning of, at least in my opinion, that's the beginning of the shift away from our naturally evolved diet. And the, you know, and, and at that stage, the impact probably was relatively minimal, you know. Uh, sure, at that stage, we start seeing uh, you know, uh, cavities, uh, dental caries in the fossil record start becoming more prolific and bone disease. Uh, but these things would have been, you know, insignificant relative to the gain it was creating for society. And, and, and then, of course, if you think of that as the beginning of the change, well, that change continues and continues and continues. And now another thing happens. Our ancestors, uh, you know, uh, 20-ish, 30-ish thousand years ago in Northern Europe stumble upon a, an African buffalo-type animal called an oryx. And, and, and you know what? We find them yummy, but we don't have to hunt them all the time. And so what do we start? We start animal husbandry. We start farming them. We start, mm-hmm. And, you know, once we started farming the oryx. them... Oryx. Oryx is a pre... Yeah, it's a it's a Pleistocene era buffalo, you know, type animal okay. um, that lived in northern Europe. It's the it's the predecessor to the cow. To the cow, we, exactly. We, yeah. we genetically modified it over the next, you know, from a four percent fat animal to a forty percent fat animal through selective All breeding. Right, right. So you know, um, but again, now now we enter another level of change where not only are we changing our food supply by having these foods available, but now, if you think about it, um, it's not just that we created a more predictable food supply. But if it's you and me, and it's 100,000, it's 20,000 years ago, and we've just figured out that we can grow plants, which plants do we grow? Think about it. Like, let's say there's five plants that are readily available around us, and two of them are unbelievably bitter, and we only ever eat them when we can't find anything else. Mm. And then there's these ones here that are quite sweet. Which ones are we going to start growing? We're going to grow the ones we like. Right, right. And, and then we did the same thing with animals. We're like, you know, God, this one's way too lean. But that one was really yummy. You know what we should do? We should breed the really yummy ones with the other really yummy ones. Once we figured out genetic modification, we changed everything. Mm-hmm. So we started breeding fat animals because fat tastes good. Right. And we started breeding sweet plants because sweet tastes good. We started, I mean, think about this. Even in your and my lifetime, how big was a strawberry when you were a little boy? 
it was um, smaller. Yeah, it was like the size of your thumb. Right, right. right? Now Wild there are, strawberry, yeah. But even in a, even in a grocery store, they were tiny comparative yeah. to what they. Now I walk in and I see a strawberry. This is the size of a of a of a plum, yeah. a small apple. Yeah. We've we now now it's in a steep part of the curve, but we've been doing that for yeah. twenty thousand years. Yeah, yeah. And so that's where I think it starts to go wrong. But the impact on an individual basis was pretty gentle, and where the impact became really significant is in the last thirty years. Exactly. Uh, it, exactly. In the last thirty years, we're in the steep edge of that hockey cur- uh, that hockey right. stick curve, right. and it just went. I mean, the sugar yeah. lobby. Uh, um, you know, one of the one of the things that I think in the history books will go down as being. Um, significantly worse than anything big tobacco ever did to us was when uh, you know the the sugar industry identified research in the 60s that indicated that sugar uh, uh, that sugar consumption was related to heart disease and they went and hired two Harvard researchers to uh, commission a quote and I don't really like air quotes but sometimes you just got to have them a quote study mm-hmm. um, and the objective of that study was to uh, frame fat was to say that fat was the cause of heart disease and, um, and so that study was picked up. It was put in the uh, New England Journal of Medicine. Once it was in the journal, it became lore. And back then, you didn't have to disclose your funding sources to get in the journal, right? So their, their research, and all of a sudden, nobody was looking at sugar anymore. They weren't even paying attention to sugar. They were all low fat, low fat, low fat. Low fat is a mistake. Mm-hmm. Using the word fat to describe every kind of fat is a mistake because there are good fats and bad fats. But suddenly it just became low fat. And so now you had people that were actually eating dangerously low levels of fat and suffering the health consequences. And meanwhile, eating phenomenal levels of sugar as the sugar lobby continued to push sugar and everything. We're at the point now where 65% of production food in America contains some form of sugar or corn syrup. And here's the kicker for me, numerically. In the 70s, type 2 diabetes was called adult onset diabetes because you pretty much, it was like, you know how you can't rent a car, you couldn't rent a car until you were 25? Well, you couldn't really have type 2 until you were 40. You know, it was kind of, not anymore. Now there are millions of people under 40 with type 2 or pre-type 2 diabetes. And that's profitable, both for the sugar industry and for the pharmaceutical industry. As you're listening to this conversation with Arjuna Arda and his radically brilliant guest, you might feel inspired to go deeper into your own expression of radical brilliance. Come join us for a one-week Radical Brilliance Laboratory held in a beautiful rural location in the Sierra Nevada mountains of California. During the laboratory, you'll have an opportunity to dive deeply into all four quadrants of the brilliant cycle. This means you'll be able to explore experiences of consciousness without boundaries. And you'll be able to start accessing original impulses of creativity from within yourself that can become your unique contribution to the world. You can get in touch with your own learning and integrate mistakes that will allow you to mature and grow. You'll have the chance to deeply mine your own resources as well as connect with other brilliant people in a small, intimate context for a week. 
you can check out the Radical Brilliance Laboratories at RadicalBrilliance.com under the Events tab. Let's put a little tent peg in here for a minute because we, you know, let's go back to the contrast between the, as, as close as we can say, the natural, the, the wild diet, we can take the word the wild out, the natural dieta of an elephant. And let's see if we can get some kind of benchmark of that for a human being. Like, like what, what, would, what could we say is a non-adulterated human diet? I, I am amazed at the level of debate there is about this. Okay. Um, and that debate is fueled by capitalism and food production sure. because the answer is fairly straightforward. Okay. My great-grandfather, uh, Thomas Dreyer, he was a, a zoologist and an archaeologist who discovered the oldest, up until recently, the oldest homo sapien skull in history. And so Lucy or? No, no, Lucy was a full skeleton doc, uh, discovered by uh, Don uh, Johansson, who lives in Marin County, not too far away from where you are. No, no, this is just um, 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 uh, standalone skull. Yeah, standalone skull. And um, the, uh, the reason I mention that is that my grandfather, my great grandfather, also excavated many of the caves along the coast of what we can now call the Garden Route in South Africa. Right, that's so, like the very bottom of South Africa. Yeah, like from you know, Cape Town right around to, okay. say, Port Elizabeth and that whole area. And there's beautiful caves along that coastline. And, and this is important to mm-hmm. think about mathematically. You know, you're from England, so how old is an old house in England? Oh, 1,000, 1,200 years. It could be. It could yeah. be. It's certainly three, 400 years, yeah. and there could be some that are even older. Yeah. And, and then you move to, you know, you now live in California. How old is an old house in California? Oh, like 80 years. Yeah, that's ancient. Yeah, I yeah. mean, that's ancient, yeah. right? Well, if we go back in the other direction, if we go to Croatia, an old house there is 1,000, 2,000 plus years. If we go to Egypt, they've got some buildings there that are, we consider to be ancient Egypt, right? 3,500, 4,000, 5,000 years old. Those pyramids are closer in age to our houses in California than to the length of time people have been living in those caves. Those caves, there's one of them I went into, and, and uh, what they did is they cut, they cut down into the cave floor and yeah. put glass put walls. Glass. Yeah, yeah. Because when people live in caves, they just litter, right? Yeah. And, and, they, and, and so the cave floor is rising all the time. They don't notice it generation by generation. But people have been living in those caves for 200,000 right, years. Right. So compare that to our wow. ancient 5,000-year-old pyramids, right? right it's right. nothing. It's yeah. nothing. It's a blink of an eye. So 200,000 years is going to get you a really good view of the and, changing refuse. And right? they know. I yeah. mean, it's right there what humans ate for that 200,000 years right. directly preceding today. Mm-hmm. And, 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 of course, we can still look at what we can't do when we look at, say, what we... I mean, primitive is probably not such a nice word for this, but when we look at people that we consider to be primitive... We can't look at, say, the Atuar Indians in, in, uh, in South America. We can't look at the Inuit in northern Canada, and, and, and we can't look at them because they, we can look at them, and there's interesting data to be pulled from that, but they're not going to give us the what was the traditional human diet because they're new to those places. They're not indigenous to those places. We consider them indigenous mm-hmm. in our politically correct kind there of world, was but they were immigrants yeah. only 30,000 years ago. Right. Those caves, 200,000 years. Yeah. We need to look at Africa. We need to look at where humans come from. And so if we look at the Hadza the Bushmen or the Khoisan, they probably give us a much better look. Not accurate completely, but much better look at what our diet was like, and those caves do. And what does it tell us? Well, humans ate 200, uh, a variety of 200 different um, plant species a year. We, we ate a very plant-based diet, a huge amounts of, uh, a huge amount, a huge quantity. And But it and wasn't... Um 
cultivated no, garden. No, it, it was not it was cultivated. Growing, everything was growing wild. Yeah. Okay. And uh, and 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 then also uh, a wide variety of, of. Let's just drill down on the plants really sure. before you go on, because you just you just pointed out something interesting I hadn't considered that once you cultivate plants in a garden, you get to choose which plants. You go, oh, I like that taste. I hadn't thought about that. You like that taste, not that taste. So you're going to eliminate plants that are naturally bitter. So, and this is a real problem because if you look at our cravings, our natural cravings, like we naturally crave sweet, we naturally crave salt, you know, there's some things that we naturally crave. But we don't actually crave... Now, there's a difference with emotional cravings, right? But we don't actually crave uh, specific foods. Sure, today somebody might crave hostess potato chips. That's a bought and paid for craving mm. that they've used hypnotic uh, advertising, ice cream. Ice cream. Yeah. These are conditioned cravings. Yeah. But the core flavor cravings that humans as a species have, sweet, salt, etc., etc., those, those cravings, if you really think about it, we would only ever have evolved a craving for something that was imperative to our health and rare. Because if it was not imperative to our health, clearly we wouldn't develop a craving for it. And if it wasn't rare, hunger itself would have driven us to eat that thing. And so why develop a craving for it? I don't quite understand the imperative to your health part because you can crave things that are dangerous to your health. It's the flavors we're talking about. Okay. Right? So so when you say you can crave something that's dangerous to your health, sure, you're craving, say, ice cream. But what do you really... heroin? People crave heroin. Yeah. You're now talking about a physical addiction. Okay. But in food terms, when you crave ice cream, you have to look at it on two levels. Okay. You crave ice cream because of the bought and paid for conditioning that you went through. You skinned your knee. Your mom gave you an ice cream. Now ice cream equals love. That's an emotional craving. That's a different issue. We can get to that. That's important. At, a, at, a, at an instinct level, ice cream is a doubly dangerous craving because it satisfies the craving for sweet and for fat. So it's, it hits two of our big core cravings. What I'm saying is that in nature, our ancestors um, evolved, I believe anyway, evolved their cravings based on you know, two metrics. How important was it to our survival? In other words, if I don't eat enough of this thing, I'm going to die. So if it was imperative to our health, we might develop a craving for it. And if it was rare, we would develop an even more powerful craving for it. Because if it was rare, we needed to be motivated to go get it. So as an example, fruit. Fruit exists for a split second. I mean, really, it does. You're, you're walking along. I, I, I've done that. I've been walking along in the, in the bush in, in, in Africa with the Bushmen, and we stumble upon a sour plum tree. It, it, one day you're walking by, and none of them are ready. The next day you walk by, and they're red, and you're in there. And they're, a week later, they're gone. Mm-hmm. Right? So if you don't have a powerful craving for them, you won't eat enough of them, mm-hmm. and you won't survive the winter. Mm-hmm. So because they're rare... We got an, a, 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 a message from the body that says, get as many of those as you can. Mm-hmm. And so bitter greens that just grow everywhere, we don't have a real powerful craving for them because hunger itself would have driven us to just eat them. Mm-hmm. You know, like, oh, I don't really crave that spinach over there, but I'm hungry. Mm-hmm. And so, we, we, so the things we crave are, I think, are the things that were this right combination of um, important to our health and rare. The problem is those cravings are now our biggest downfall yeah. because now food manufacturers know that if they put sugar in stuff they can trigger your cravings yeah well let's go back to the cave okay let's go back to the cave and let's dig down to the to the bottom of the cave where there's the way there's the least genetic the least modification possible right so you said 200 200 varieties of, of plant but let's give some examples just to clarify like for example would a carrot be in there no a carrot is a genetically modified uh, carrot carrot this is one of the difficult things that we have. 
Um, I'm a huge fan of, of Dr. Lauren Cordain and the paleo movement. Um, I, I, I met with him, uh, we had an interview a couple of, maybe two years ago, and I asked him what inspired paleo, and he told me that it was a paper written by S. Boyd Eaton. Yeah, same paper, that paper. Have you? Yeah. Same paper that I read that yeah. inspired Yeah, uh, that's what started it all. Yeah. It did, yeah. and I, you know, and so... He's an interesting guy, S. Boyd Eaton. He really is. Yeah. But um, let's, if we go back to paleo for a minute, here's the funny thing about paleo is you have to recognize that there isn't really anything left that's paleo in, a real, in real terms. I mean, there are some things that are close. You can go have a piece of bison steak instead of beef, and that would be more paleo. But in the world of paleo, beef is considered paleo. It really isn't. Mm-hmm. Let me put it another way. Paleo is a brand, and so, yes, therefore, it can be paleo, but it is not paleolithic. Yeah. And carrots are not paleolithic. Okay, let's, well, let's stay with the carrots, because I want to just stay with the, with, the, with the vegetables a minute. Sorry. Yeah. But... So I, I brought up carrots simply because you mentioned that once we went into agricultural production of food, we would favor sweeter foods. Yes. Carrot is a root that tastes kind of Swedish, right? So I'm thinking, okay, that could well be something that we favored. So if we go back to where we were eating plants but not cultivating them in the garden, let's give some examples. What kind of plants? There we is a, there, are, there are wild versions of just about every plant that we eat. Mm. Right, so if you take a look at carrots, for example, I remember as a kid identifying that there was a um, uh, growing up in eastern Canada, there was a, a weed that grew all over the fields when we'd go camping and stuff. And there was a weed. And once you figured it out, which weed it was, you grab it really close to the base of the roots and you pull it out. And it's got these long uh, yellow roots and they you can eat them and they taste like carrots. Mm-hmm. They're very thin. Mm-hmm. They're not nearly as thick as the way we have carrots today, but they're a predecessor to the carrot. That is much closer to what our ancestors would have been eating. Is when you're pulling out a root. The challenge is once we learn how to grow it, mm-hmm. you know, for, in the first phase is you figure, wow, if we throw out these seeds here, we can grow this plant. Next step is where we start going, wow, this variety seems sweeter. And if we breed it yes. selectively. Let's go before that. Let's, 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 go, let's drill down in the cave before we start doing that. And let, uh, the reason I want to do this, I'm, 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 I'm wanting to mine you for information here, because you know this podcast is all about brilliance, right? All about what does it take to have a mind that that is like a finely tuned enough mind that it can actually be able to see things clearly and become an instrument of evolution? Because that's you know the, most people can see the planet's in a big mess, right? What we need is to be able to see, see things with a really sharp, clear mind that can actually... Like, like Daniel Schmackenberg is one of my big heroes on this podcast because he has this capacity to look at things in a completely new way. So I'm particularly interested in diet in the way that you talked about you know, the elephant, right? So one level, okay, we've got how long you live and whether you've got diseases. And we've talked about this before. You can refine that where, okay, now we've got greater longevity... And medicine will do this. Western medicine will make sure you live longer and, and manage your disease symptoms. But you can still have a tremendous amount of brain fog or just, yeah. you know, just unclarity or, or emotion, lack of emotional well-being connected with dieta. So that's, that's where I want to go. And that's, that's why I wanted to see if we can drill back to what, what, what is the dieta before we start messing with it. But that's what I'm saying to yeah. you. It's wild versions of the plants we eat right, right. now and, men, and many that we've lost. Okay. And, and, and sadly for us, we will have lost many because we chose not to breed them. Yeah. So some of, the, some of those 200 plants are gone. They're gone. Or they're in the wild somewhere in Africa and, and we can learn about them from the Hadza Bushmen and what have you because I've done that. I've been out with them. Like I remember being out with them um, pretty much every time I've been out with them we will be out hunting and then, then we stop and there's a bush that they pull out, they, that they'll dig up and it's, the roots are super deep. And then they'll bring up these roots, and 
the best way I can describe them for you is that they're halfway between a, they're sort of like texturally, they're like, um, like an onion and a sweet potato combined. Mm. And you can eat them raw. They're full of water, which is, you know, the mot- which is the driving factor to dig them up because they're full of water. But equally, there's a bunch of nutrition in them, of course. And you can eat them raw and they're delicious, but they're even better if you throw them on the fire. You throw them on the fire and they caramelize and the natural sugars come out of the more and then they become this unbelievably delicious meal. Uh, you can't buy that at the grocery store. Uh, you just can't. In fact, um, you know, what's re- you know, here, here's an interesting thing is uh, gut bacteria. We're now beginning to understand how important gut bacteria is, that we are our gut bacteria and, mm-hmm. and, and, and our gut bacteria's health is our health. And so I can't think of the guy's name now, but he's been one of the leading scientists in exploring gut bacteria in, 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 in I think he's based in London. And uh, he went down to go visit with the Hadza Bushman. Now, before this, what's fascinating is he has a huge test group of people, and he's been measuring a bunch of things about gut bacteria. And one of them was gut bacteria biodiversity. And he had tested his own gut bacteria relative to the test group, and he actually had the broadest biodiversity of gut bacteria of everyone in his test group out of curiosity. I suspect that's because it was something he was curious about, so it drove his eating patterns. Then he went down to stay for one week with the Hadza Bushman, and his own gut bacteria... Biodiversity, already higher than anybody else in the test group, as I remember it, grew by 30% just in one week of eating with the Bushman. Okay. Because he's suddenly eating a bunch of plants that our gut bacteria enjoys. Right. You know, and so when you want to go back... Maybe that they also, he was eating plants that had soil on them? So? It could be that as well. It could, it's yeah. the whole lifestyle. That's the whole thing. It's just, right. it, but the, So when you say, let's go back in that cave, well, one of the problems is plants don't preserve so well as litter. So it's yeah, difficult to true. identify specific yeah. species in the same way as it is right. uh, animal bones and, and seafood, you know, say, uh, uh, shellfish and stuff. But they, clearly seeds are present, and, and, and so they can identify those types of things. My, one of the things that woke me up to this is my mother has a book at home, and it has um, 200, plant, 200 edible African plant species. Is she still in South Africa? No, no. She's back in Canada now. And, uh, and that book to me is an inspiration because I, I, like, I suddenly was able to identify when I went out with the Bushman. I'm able to go, oh, that, it, well, that's in the book. It, it, these are edible species that we, for one reason or another, didn't breed. Maybe, you know, some plants aren't good at being grown. They, they need to be wild. And then other plants we didn't breed because they weren't yummy enough. So why bother? But what we've then left behind is a bunch of nutrients that we need that we aren't eating anymore. If you're enjoying this podcast, you might enjoy dropping by radicalbrilliance.com. We've got an ebook for you which explains the radical brilliance cycle, the way the cycle gets blocked, and the practices that best open up the cycle again. We also have five days of gifts and insights for you, delivered every day by email and video, which go much more deeply into the phases of the cycle, the ways that the cycle can become a kind of diagnosis of blocked brilliance, and a way to accurately find the right practice for each person. In addition, you'll receive a video about the single most important practice that we have determined affects brilliance. And another video about everyone's favorite topic, brilliant sex. It's all totally free, prepared for you as our guest. 
please come to RadicalBrilliance.com. Register on the homepage and you'll receive the ebook right away. Then you'll be guided through the five days of videos to take you deeper into your own radical brilliance. So that, what, what percent, if, if we go, let's just say before, I mean, obviously the further back we go, the less adulterated, but let's just say pre-agricultural, which is like before 10,000 years, right? What proportion of the diet do you suppose was plant-based? That's a difficult thing to know. Um, you know, it, it would have been very seasonal, I imagine. Um, if you, right, if right, you right. consider... Uh, springtime, you know, um, here's an interesting little tidbit is that many animals in Africa, take the impala, for example, um, they have a breeding season that spans several weeks, um, and, and, but they have a birthing day. So think about that, right? Like that means that somehow they've got an app or something <laughs> that tells them all to drop their babies on roughly the same day. The app they have is called Rain, and what happens is the minute the first rains of the season come, they drop their babies. Now, there's two really good reasons for this. The one is that prior to the rains, food is really scarce, and so having all these babies competing with them, you know, so it's better that they're just getting their nutri nutrition inside from their mom. But that's not the real reason. The real reason they drop them all when the first rains come is that if they drop their babies on proper gestation cycle, then the lions and the hyenas and the jackals would eat them all. But by dropping all their babies on the same day, the, enough of the babies survive the cull, in a sense, right? The lines are full. They can't eat them all. And that gives the babies an extra two or three days to grow their strength. Wow. Now, that season is hunting season. I imagine our ancestors were very much the same way, mm. that when the rains came and suddenly hunting got really good, if there was really good red available... And remember also, meat back then was a different thing than it is today. You know, it, it was a very different thing. No pesticides, no GMO, none of that stuff. It was, you know what it was supposed to be. So during that season, they probably had uh, a very high percentage of their diet coming from meat during hunting season. But then when you move into like summer and fall where root vegetables and fruits are prolific on the trees, why risk your life? Mm -hmm. You know, hunting is dangerous. Mm -hmm. You're not just hunting those animals, but you're competing with lions. Like, right. you know, and, and so during those seasons, I think that we probably went through long stretches of time where we were eating largely... Um, uh, you know, uh, plant, very plant-based diets. And I think this is one of the things that is wrong with our current diet industry is that people identify one thing that's right. Like, look... This is good for you. This is not good for you. That's right. We're and it's not there. like that. Like, yeah. you know, the vegans are out there and, uh, like, I, I, you know, 85% of people that become vegan stop mm -hmm. because it's not nutritionally sustainable and they run into difficult... Unless they supplement correctly and take the right steps, it's really difficult. Mm -hmm. but, but they're more right than they're wrong. Because we should all be vegan for times, right? Like, mm -hmm. the, 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 I mean, it now turns out, um, I remember actually speaking of Daniel. Daniel and I debate this quite often because he's a, he's a uh, um, or at least the last I saw him, he's a, um, a very devoted vegan. And so we're having this conversation about B12. And um, I asked him, well, you know, how long do you think we can store B12? And at that time, the, the research I'd read said that we can store it max sort of 18 months or something like that. Turns out we can store B12 for three to five years in the liver. Well, you know what's fascinating? 85% of people who come vegan give up. And you know what? They give up before three to five years. Mm -hmm. Because there comes a point where they... And, and, and here's a, an interesting thing as well, is that one of the symptoms of B12 deficiency is aggression. Isn't that fascinating? Mm -hmm. Now, I think... I make a joke about that with my vegan friends because they become quite militant. And I'm like, oh, you must be in the B12. <laughs> You're being pretty militant here. But if you think about it, doesn't it make sense evolution? I mean, this is theory. I'm not speaking from a position of fact. It just kind of makes sense to me that... 
our ancestors, if they got to a place where their B12 levels were starting to fall, wouldn't aggression be helpful with the hunting process? Right, 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 right. Right? right. Very good point. Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, but the point is, is that now we go, meat is good or bad. Well, yes, meat is good or bad. Yeah. Even kale. Like, you know, kale, the, 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 the godsend of the plant-based diet world. Yeah, if you eat kale all the time, you're going to have a magnesium deficiency because kale interferes with the uptake of magnesium. This is where we've really differentiated ourselves by um, understanding, you know, in the way we've constructed the WildFit program and the WildFit ethos is we've really introduced something to the, to the diet space that hasn't really been addressed correctly. My, and I'm sure people had, but I hadn't really seen it. Um, and that is cyclical eating patterns. Yeah, good. Now, yeah, I've seen like macrobiotic people are like, well, eat only what's season available near you, blah, blah, blah. That's a version of it. But I'm not talking about the seasons that you live in. I'm talking about recognizing our ancestral seasons. I'm, right, I'm talking about the fact that we are sub-Saharan primates and we are designed to put on fat to survive drought. We're designed for that. Mm-hmm. And, and we're designed to eat meat at times in huge abundance. And then we are designed to not eat meat. Great. That's super good. Yeah. So, super good. That's so, so, such a great insight. And, you know, that is the point that, I mean, we have this, you know, food co-op where I live, which because of the particular town I live in, it's like enormous. It's like the biggest store in town, you know. And in a way, there's a sense of incredible abundance and, 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 and blessing that you can walk into this building where just about any food from anywhere in the planet at any time of year is available to you. Yeah. So there's not this, it's all cyclicalness has gone from the equation. You know, you yeah. can eat a ripe mango 365 days a year. But it actually then, since that is available, we're not going to be able to undo the availability at this point, it does require now education and awareness. Yeah. That you, have to, you actually have to manage your own cyclicalness and understand that there are different times of the year to eat different kinds of things. And that's a fabulous insight because yeah. you're right, that is missing. You can, you can go on talking about how good a certain food is without realizing that anything could be too much of a good thing. And it, it really starts to move out into um, other areas, like uh, if you think about um, you know, fitness, you know, mm-hmm. people moving and stuff like that. Uh, I will change my fitness routine relative to the season that Brilliant. I'm in. Because yeah. if, 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 for example, I'm doing what we call in Wild Fit Spring, and the reason we call it spring is that when we first launched it, it basically it's keto. Um, but when we launched it, you know, before keto became a thing, if you went to Google and you type keto into Google, the first thing that came up back then was ketoacidosis. Now you type in keto and you get a million keto things. Yeah. But we did the research and we found that our, you know, that our people type in keto and they would get ketoacidosis and they'd be frightened. So we stopped calling it keto and we said right. we just call it spring. Okay. And that's because we were putting people into ketosis. But now you've got this whole miracle thing about ketosis. Oh, it's the miracle this, miracle that. It does everything. Well, yeah, but it's a season. Right, so and it's good to do in the in the spring. Then. It's a, it's a yeah. good well, and I it's not even that I think about like again, it's not about the season you live in because what you live in Northern California, your DNA doesn't really understand those seasons. Mm-hmm. Your DNA understands sub-Saharan seasons a whole lot better, and and your DNA probably even understands Northern European seasons better than it does California seasons. Exactly, it's not that. It's just the cyclical nature of it. It's 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 understanding that there is a season for this. So if I'm in, uh, if I'm in spring in Wildfit Spring. Um, then that's a time when I'll increase the intensity of my workouts because think about it, hunting is an incredibly intense workout, yes, right? Yeah. And and if you think again, I'll affect my timing that way. That if I go for a really serious run or a big resistance based workout, then I want to within ten or fifteen minutes of that, I want to be 
eating meat. I want to be right. having, you know, of course I choose the, the best source I can get ethically. So, you know, I'll, I want to do the right thing here. Um, but if that's what my body, because if you think about it, your ancestors, our ancestors, they would have gone for this super intense hunt. The hunt was done. What would they be eating? Well, they wouldn't go, oh, look, we've got that. I wonder if we could find some potatoes to serve on the side. Or right? Merlot. Yeah, yeah or right. Merlot. Right? Like, no, they, they eat that thing right yeah. then. And that's, yeah. So the body's going, after intense exercise, the body's going, where's, where's the fruits of the effort we just put in? Yeah. But if I move into, um, when I move into what we think of as, say, summer, fall, we're now... Well, you just made actually, I, I want to just drop, don't miss that point. Mm. It's actually a mono diet is going to be much easier on the body, yeah. much closer to... But you know what? Sadly... We are getting to the end of our window. And I, I want to just, before we wrap things up, I want to actually just say two things. Okay. First of all, you know, it's quite common to say, hey, nice shirt, bro. You know, <laughs> or to say like, oh, I love your car. You know, how is that Tesla? You know, there are many things that we're used to complimenting each other. And I want to, I want to offer you a kind of slightly socially unconventional compliment. I want to say to you, nice mind, man. <laughs> Cheers. Thank you. No, because, and to you. Uh, I, really, I love our, our, our chats. Well, Radical Brilliance is really all about, you are like one of the poster boys for what I'm really on about, is the capacity to really think in this way, to really like put aside the way things are done. Oh, it's just like that. And I've been doing this now with medicine, you know, with relationship, with sexuality, with finances. It's like, never mind the way it's been done. Let's actually look at this with fresh eyes and intelligence. And it's, it's actually, you have, to do some, you have to do a lot of mining. You've got to do a lot of hunting, gathering, right? To find minds that are capable of doing that. And along with Daniel Schmackenberger and Lynn Twist and uh, Alex Ebert and a bunch of people, like you, you, you get my brilliant, one of my brilliant mind Thank awards, you. right? And I really respect you for that. And, and you're making a massive contribution by having the discipline to think about these things in a fresh way. And I really respect it. I, I do want to do one just quick, you know, wrap up here because we, I mean, this is such an amazingly deep and fascinating topic. I realized we could talk for eight hours straight and we would, we would still be at the beginning of the conversation. It's, and it's great you've done all this. I want to just see if we can create a little takeaway here. Uh, I mean, to encourage people, obviously, to get a thorough education. Wildfoot is like a 90-day course, right? Yeah. So that's a, that's a really thorough... And we can... We can we'll, we'll, put a little, we'll put a link you know, on the same page where this is going. But let's just think of, like, in, in maybe just five minutes or less, let's just go for a few principles of... What do we want to lean towards in, in diet and what do we want to stay away from to, to maximize the possibility of, of, of being clear? You know, not only living long and, and minimizing disease, but actually having clarity and emotional well-being. The good news is most people already know this stuff. I mean, in the intellectual sense, they don't, you know, there's the old Chinese uh, proverb, to know and not to do is not to know. Yeah. So you could argue they don't know it. Right. Most people know they... they you know, they should be eating a wider variety and a greater, a greater quality and quantity of, of vegetables. Of vegetables. Most people know that. And what, what sort of percentage of the diet would you say needs to be vegetables? Again, we'd have to really dive deep into each season and so exactly. on. Um, I, but I like, and I think it has a lot to do, everybody's a little different in terms of the level of activity they have and that sort of stuff. I just, all I can say is substantial. It shouldn't right. be a side. And of course, there's a whole, another whole conversation, which maybe we have to have another time about cooked or raw, you know? Generally, generally, I'm 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 for uh, generally I'm for as about as raw as can get. I won't eat broccoli raw. I like to yeah. frighten my broccoli, but yeah. but but I, I think that most people it? know I like to frighten it in the steamer. <laughs> I like to I like to just threat, hold I, I hold my broccoli over the steamer and I say, "Give me your name and serial number," and then I take it away. I don't fully steam it. I just like okay, to soften it. it a little. 
But um, so I, you go as raw as you can. I do typically, yeah, yeah. and and. Um, the, uh, I mean, one of the principles, you're asking for takeaway principles. Here's a principle. If you cannot eat it raw, if it can't be eaten raw, it's not really edible. Right, like wheat. Yeah, it's just, yeah. you know, and, and many beans. Well, what about rice? Then by that virtue, rice. Rice is, I mean, we can make it edible by yeah. cooking it, but the truth is it's not particularly. Yeah. Now, by edible, what I mean is if you can't eat it raw, it's not necessary. Yeah. Okay. Now, now some people will argue, well, you can't eat meat raw. Well, nah, that's not you really can. true. Definitely. You can. It's just you can't. You don't want to do that from the grocery store because it's been aged. Yeah, and, and, and it makes you, it, it's kind of, you have to get used to it. You have yeah. to get used to it. Yeah. So, so, but takeaway-wise, you know, we want to eat. Ceviche, right? Yeah, ceviche and stuff. We, but takeaway-wise, what we want to do is eat eat a wider variety and quantity and quality of, of vegetables. Right. We want to eat um, fruits, but, but, you know, like gently. Like, mm. you know, my view is uh, it, it's very easy for me because I live in the tropics, but when mangoes are in season, I'm eating them. Yeah. So, you know, you want to eat fruits, but you don't want to be having them every day because nature would never have let you eat. I, right. I think the pancreas needs a break. Right. Uh, the, the, we need high quality, and I prefer lean. I, you know, I... Like uh, bison and, and you know that kind of stuff, but look, uh, organic, uh, um, wild caught animals and that sort of stuff. That sort of you know, but Arjuna, here's the real key, kicker. Most diets are built on what you need to take away. Yeah. And sure, there's some stuff we should avoid, but you've got to remember our health is far more determined by getting enough of the good stuff in. Right. If people just focus on that one thing, just eating a lot more of the good stuff, they can yeah. make right. radical changes. Well, let's just let's just quickly summarize, just you know, as a takeaway. Like, let's just think of, let's maybe we can do backwards and forwards, like five obvious things to avoid, right? I, I, I've noticed that my mental clarity goes clearly through the roof, and a lot of other things clear up if I keep away from anything to do with a, that something came out of a, the udder of a cow. Yep. Right. Dairy products. Yeah. Refined sugar. Right. Corn syrup. Right. Um, I, you know, I think that um, many cheap carbs. Yeah. You know, uh, I'm not so, a big fan of wheat in yeah, that so sense. Processed food, yeah. And processed foods, pesticides, herbicides. I mean, right. if people, if people actively seek to to diminish those things dramatically, they'll. I mean, look, every university in America these days, in their study guides, tell children don't eat sugar while you're studying. It blunts your memory. All right. You know, so I think eliminating those things are, are important. I just think for the average person, the focus should be on what to add. Right. The weird thing is. The more you add healthy stuff, the less craving you have for the Absolutely. other stuff. Hey, man, thanks so much. You're I mean, very welcome. We, we, Thank it, you. It, it, it's, it's actually it's a kind of a pain in the ass interviewing you because there's never a good point to stop. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's like however much you get, you want more, right? <laughs> so true. thank you so much. I really, 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 really appreciate and respect the contribution you're making. It's, it's so important. Everything you focus on is so important. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I hope you thoroughly enjoyed that conversation with Eric, which we recorded together in Mexico when we were both on vacation together after a meeting of the Transformational Leadership Council. I just love hanging out with Eric and his wonderful wife, Elise, and their beautiful daughter, Zoe. Now I'm going to give you, as always, a little homework to take away, a little assignment, so that this conversation can trickle over into your day-to-day -day life. Again, what I'd love for you to do is a little journaling. So take your notebook. Once again, I'm just going to put in a little plug for getting yourself a really nice notebook. You know, there's something about writing with a pen. Uh, 
in a notebook that's different from from working on a computer or on a phone. I love to buy moleskin notebooks. They're, they're a little more classy. I love to write with a fountain pen with real ink. It really makes all the difference. I recommend you check it out. So please take your notebook, or you could talk to a friend if you like. And, and remember, I do love to hear the fruits of your investigations. So you can go to Facebook or radicalbrilliance.com and uh, send in a little report on the conclusions you came to. So what I'd like to ask you to do today is to review your diet as it is today, having just listened to Eric. Think about the things you've actually eaten in the last week, not necessarily the things you think you should eat. That's maybe a little different. But what did you actually eat in the last week? How much of your diet, as it actually is day to day, is in alignment with what you really feel is the right diet for you. So what are the things you're eating which, if I asked you, you could say, yeah, I really think this is the right thing for me to be eating and I know it's best for my body and best for my clarity. And the other question then you might ask yourself is, what are the things that you are actually putting into your body? Whatever your beliefs and values may be, that's different. But what are the things that you're actually putting into your body that maybe taste good and they might be a little, perhaps even a little addictive, but somehow, consciously or unconsciously, you know it's not really the best for your health or best for your mental clarity. And third, I'd like to ask you, what would be your sense of the perfect diet for you? What are the changes you need to make, maybe next week, to bring what you actually put into your body more into alignment with what you know is its natural diet. So take a few minutes when we're done to journal so that you can translate this podcast into something real. What are the foods that you know are best for your body, not only for your own health and longevity, but perhaps more important, for your mental clarity so you can make the greatest contribution? Now, I'd love to hear what you have to say about that. You can go to RadicalBrilliance.com, go to the podcast tab, and you'll find this podcast. Or you could go to Facebook.com forward slash Radical Brilliance. And if you scroll down, you'll find this podcast there as well. You might also have some, uh, some suggestions that other people could follow up on. So we've got more great things coming. The next podcast in this series is actually a dialogue with my wife, Shamily Arda, the founder of Awakening Women. We sat down together and actually contemplated what exactly happened for us that we ended up in such a constantly blissful marriage. You know, we've been married 17 years now and uh, neither of us were really prime candidates to have honeymoon all the time. We both had divorce and conflict uh, in our families of origin. Both We were both traumatized by that in different ways. And we both had pretty not flowing relationships before we met. But we made certain decisions and commitments together early on, which we've followed through on now for 17 years. And it has turned into something really, really that blows us away every day, something really magical. 
that um, our marriage has become a very potent portal into staying connected with love, not just with each other, but in the way we live all of our lives. So I'm going to share all that with you. Shamily and I will be in dialogue together in the next episode of this podcast. Come on back and join for that. And thank you for joining me today for this conversation with Eric. See you soon.